And now, hear the word of God from Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Write down for the record everything I've said to you, Jeremiah. For the time is coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people of Israel and Judah. I will bring them home to this land that I gave their ancestors, and they will possess it again. I, the Lord, have spoken. For in that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will break the yoke from their necks and snap their chains. Foreigners will no longer be their masters. For my people will serve the Lord their God, and their king descended from David, the king I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, says the Lord. For I will bring you home again from distant lands, and your children will return from their exile. Israel will return to a life of peace and quiet, and no one will terrorize them. For I am with you and will save you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. And now from chapter 31. And that day, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. Those who survive the coming destruction will find blessings even in the barren land, for I will give rest to the people of Israel. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I've drawn you to myself. I will rebuild you, my virgin Israel. You will again be happy and dance merrily with your tambourines. Again, you will plant your vineyards on the mountains of Samaria and eat from your own gardens there. The day will come when watchmen will shout from the hill country of Ephraim, come, let us go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord our God. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, when I bring them back from captivity, the people of Judah and its towns will again say, the Lord bless you, O righteous home, and its towns will again say, the Lord bless you, O holy mountain. Townspeople and farmers and shepherds alike will live together in peace and happiness. For I've given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrowing. At this, I woke up and looked around. My sleep had been very sweet. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will greatly increase the human population and the number of animals here in Israel and Judah. In the past, I deliberately uprooted and tore down this nation. I overthrew it, destroyed it, and brought disaster upon it. But in the future, I will just as deliberately plant it and build it up. I, the Lord, have spoken. The people will no longer quote this proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. All people will die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths pucker. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day, 
and the moon and stars to light the night, and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. The day is coming, says the Lord, when all Jerusalem will be rebuilt for me, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. A measuring line will be stretched out over the hill of Gerab and across Goa, and the entire area, including the graveyard ash dump in the valley, and all the fields of the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be captured or destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. You know, pretty much every Sunday, I come out here, and before I start preaching, I get up here and say, good morning, and say something along the lines of how good it is to be here with all of you, or how wonderful it is to be together. But here's the thing. I really believe it every single Sunday. I do. You guys are like, oh, Lawrence is going to say how good it is to be together again. (laughs) He can't really mean it every single time. I really do. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I mean, there are days where I might be thinking, golf would be fun this morning. I'll admit that. There are days I'm thinking sleeping in, followed by a lazy morning and a nice brunch. Sounds wonderful. I'll admit that as well. I felt those things. But still, every single time I come into this place, every single time, God has been faithful to show me again and again how wonderful and blessed it is to come and worship alongside my brothers and my sisters. In this holy assembly, I get reminded again and again of my wonderful salvation and what a blessing it is to have a relationship with a living Savior. I get told again that I am loved and I have purpose, that I'm not alone and I have an anchor and a living hope. So my people, It is good to be gathered together as the people of God. Now, I'll say that again, just so that you guys don't get tired of me saying it every Sunday. It's intentional. Because I want all of us to be reminded that it is good. It is good to gather together. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're continuing in our series in the book of Jeremiah. And last week, we saw what it was like to live as elect exiles for the Israelites in Babylon and how that relates to us. We are also elect exiles called to live in a place that is not truly our home. This morning we're in Jeremiah 30 through 33 and it is a section of Jeremiah where prophecy and hope is given to the Israelite people. In particular, an incredible term is given that we will spend really this whole morning focused on. It says a new covenant is being made. Anybody hear that word, the new covenant is being made? Where Where have you heard that before, anywhere? Anybody? Everybody kind of wants to whisper it because they don't really like, want to be bold enough to say it loud so they're wrong. I, I see how it is. It's okay. Jesus? When? What? Did somebody say communion? Did somebody say communion? All right. Communion's correct. <laughs> I don't know if someone's going to own up to saying it, but I was just curious. I just wanted to call them out a little bit. No, communion's correct. He says it in communion. 
He says the same, the same word, a new covenant. So we won't talk, talk about this morning. What does it mean? What does a new covenant mean? But before we get to that, a quick question I want to ask everybody. As a kid, have you ever been punished as like a group or a team? I mean, like the whole team or class gets punished for the actions of some of those on the team, right? But you were like obeying and didn't do anything wrong, but you still had to do the punishment? Has that ever happened to you? Like on the basketball team, we had to run sprints if the rest of the players were being lazy. Even if you weren't lazy, you still had to run sprints with the whole team. Or like the whole class wouldn't get the pizza party because some of the kids couldn't stop talking. Yeah? In both those cases, I might have been the culprit. But either way, <laughs> either way, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's not the point. I'm not the point of me being the culprit. Did you ever feel like that wasn't fair? Yeah, that, meant, that feeling? Why am I being punished for something someone else did? Well, sometimes I thought about that. I, I, I don't know why my mind goes these places, but I thought about that for the Israelites. I mean, could you imagine you're a somewhat good Israelite going about your business? You see how messed up everyone else is around you. And, you know, you, you might not be perfect, but you're trying to live by the Mosaic law. You're, you, you do the right sacrifices. You don't have Asherah poles or you're doing these weird things everybody else is. You're, you're somewhat obeying the Mosaic law. And then judgment comes, and you've seen Gehenna, and now you're exiled. And you're kind of like, this isn't fair, right? Do you, do you guys ever think that way? Am I the only one that thought about that? Like, some of the Israelites are like, whoa, why do we get punished as a whole nation? Is everybody equally bad? Is everybody, you know, some people are really messed up. There's like weird things like child sacrifice happening. But you're like, I'm somewhat doing the Mosaic law. Do you blame God? Do you blame the people if that's you? I think this idea of team or corporate kind of punishment doesn't sit well for us as a society, right? Am I right? Because for us, we're very individualistic. Like, you're kind of responsible for yourself and your own family, your own household, your own individual. But... For the Israelite people, they, they identified and lived as a corporate identity. One of the biggest driving factors of who made them who they are is that their understanding as a corporate identity. So this idea of, of group punishment, of corporate punishment and blessing was something that would sit well with them and they would understand. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? And so in my mind, I'm thinking of, imagine yourself first off as an Israelite who kind of like was somewhat doing well, somewhat obeying the Mosaic law, that you're exiled, you're in this horrible place, what hope do you have? Right? You're sitting here and you're like saying, God, I'm trying to obey the Mosaic law and I'm exiled and I have no hope that the rest of these people will ever accomplish what you call them to accomplish. These guys saw you do miracles, you sent prophets and they're still being dumb. What hope do I have? Because corporately as a body, these people aren't going to do it. Jeremiah gives hope for those who are both good Israelites and those who are deserving of punishment here in our section of scripture. Now, mind you, I want to first off say that the Bible is very clear. There is not one who is worthy. Even our best deeds and righteousness is, is like filthy rags before God. But I love this fact here that Jeremiah in this section Make sure the identity of the people, no matter what those who are thinking they're good, those who acknowledge they're bad, or anywhere in between, can still have hope in the new covenant. And for us, really quickly, what I want us to understand and to get to grab a hold of, really idea, is understanding this context of corporate national identity first. Because that's very difficult for us as a people. Understand that we are being judged as an overall group. 
versus just an individual judgment. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? Okay, moving on. He gives these incredible word of prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this. The days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. The days are coming that I'm going to make a new covenant. And to understand this prophecy properly, we should ask how it fits with the other Old Testament expectations for the future. The opening words, the days are coming, may appear vague to you and me, but the immediate context of this prophecy helps us see that Jeremiah's words are really actually quite precise. The prophecy of a new covenant is part of a larger segment of this book of Jeremiah that extends from 31 to all of 32. This section is often called the book of restoration because it gives several descriptions of Israel's hardships during the exile and blessings that have come after the exile. This phrase, days are coming, also appears in chapter 30, verse 3, where it explicitly associated with God's promise, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. So the idea at first is this, first of all, this prophecy in this section is basically saying for those of you who are in exile, those of you who are experiencing punishment, for those of you who experience such loss, you will be restored. What a message of hope. For those of you who are wondering, is God real? Has God left me? Those are the, you Israelites who say, now that Jerusalem is destroyed, now that we're cast in exile, does God even reach this far? Jeremiah is saying to you, the day is coming when Jerusalem will be restored, the land will be back. So it's a promise. Now, you guys, I want you to hear this. Prophetic words don't have to all happen all at the same time. Does that make sense? What happened in this prophetic word is this actually happens, but the rest of it happens in stages. So here's what I mean. The expression days are coming in 3131 also refers to the time when the exile will be finished and God's people will return to the promised land. Prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah also refer to this time of return that will ultimately lead to the coming of the Messiah. And that's what the people of Israel are looking forward to. This new covenant that would start with the return to their land then lead to the coming of the Messiah that would then come the rest of the prophecy given here in Jeremiah. So then for the Israelites who heard this prophecy, what made the covenant new? Why was it called the new covenant? And there's a lot of confusion over what makes the new covenant new. That we have to be careful not to go to the extremes here. On the one hand, many Christians have taken the expression new covenant to mean that it's entirely new, brand new. This is a brand new thing. Throw away the old, it's, it's wrong, Mosaic covenant, just kick it to the curb. That's what some people interpret this as, but it's not what it means. The word new here translates to the Hebrew term chadash, which does not mean utterly new. Rather, it means renewed, renovated, rebuilt, refreshed. In other words, God's not promising a brand, he's not saying, ah, forget the old promises I've made. This is a brand new one, right? Have you guys ever been to like one of those ceremonies where you kind of renew your vows? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like one of those wedding ceremonies where you renew I hope what they're not saying when they do these renewal ceremonies is they're not saying, all the promises I made to you back then, they don't count anymore. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, they're, I hope, when they're doing it well, is, no, no, I recommit. All the heart message of that old ceremony is still true, but I'm saying to you that this is, this is a renewed vigor. I'm recommitting myself to this. Do you hear what I'm saying? This idea is a little more similar to that, is that it is not a throwing away of the old covenant promises, 
but a recommitment, but in a slightly different way. See, in this contrast, Jeremiah's prophecy actually focuses much attention on the one of the main ways the new covenant will be different. It says this, Jeremiah 31, 32, the new covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, where I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, declares the Lord. Jeremiah's focus, there's four features of the new covenant that make it slightly different from the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. Now, I'll quickly list through what those four different things are so that we understand what this new covenant renewal means. Number one, first, the new covenant cannot be broken. In Jeremiah 31, 32, God described the covenant with Moses as my covenant that they broke. Generation after generation, the people of Israel broke the law of Moses. They served false gods. They practiced practices that were just heinous to God. This promised new covenant, though, cannot be broken like the promise of Moses was because, because it comes from a different place. Because what happens is the second point of the new covenant is too is that it leads to a transformation of God's people. This new covenant leads, as God put it in Jeremiah 31, 33, I'll put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. Rather than setting aside his commandments, God promised to transform his people so they would be wholeheartedly obey his command. This idea that before the Mosaic Covenant was that here is my law, here is my command. It was like a guardrail system. This is to show you how much you need me. In this new covenant, he's saying, no, no, I'm going to write my commands in your heart. There's going to be a transformation that happens in you. Other places make it look like, talk about this idea of giving you a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. This kind of inward transformation was called for before. Passages like in Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah 4 called the people of Israel to move beyond their kind of outward association of rule following to a transformation of writing of God's law on their hearts. Now our third point of difference is that the inward transformation of the new covenant will include each person in covenant God. So each person will know and be transformed. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Many people in the Old Testament Israel knew God, but so many did not know him as the nation as a whole broke Moses' covenant and fell under the judgment of exile. By contrast, God promised in the new covenant that from the least of them to the greatest would have saving knowledge of him. And the results of the saving grace will be shown in every person in the new covenant. And so the, the idea, the result of the fourth point of difference is this wondrous expectation that God, sins of God's people will be forgiven forever. That's the fourth difference in the New Testament, is that, uh, in, the, in the New Covenant, is that sins of the people will be forgiven. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Throughout the Old Testament, animal sacrifice made it possible for God's people to experience temporary relief from the judgment of God. By contrast, the new covenant would bring forth permanent, eternal forgiveness of sins. It's no wonder then that Jeremiah's prophecy about the new covenant was cherished by the Israelites. They longed for the day when their covenant relationship with God would be renewed. They looked forward to the time when all God's people would be transformed into faithful servants and their sins forgiven forever. So here again, back to the, back it up. We're Israelites living in exile. 
You're cast away. You've been through hell. You've been through Gehenna. You're exiled living in Babylon. There's prophets going out to you. You guys remember last week who said it's only going to be a couple years. But Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be 70 years. You're going to live as elect exiles. You're going to live a lifetime. Generations will be brought up as exiles. You're supposed to seek the welfare of the city as you grow and multiply and continue to be God's people because God hasn't left you. Now here comes his promise. He's saying, here's the deal. God is still powerful here. He knows you, he loves you, and he hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't left you. You might not feel him here, but he's with you. And then he says, here's the promise. Here's the new covenant. You failed, you've kept on failing at the Mosaic Covenant. You could not keep your word, you could not keep faithful to him. You were like a, like a cheating spouse, over and over again. But here's the covenant new promise to you. God will one day, God will one day bring you back to the land and then out of the product of the land will come a king, will come a Messiah out of the line of David. And he'll provide a way where that, in this new covenant, cannot be broken. In this new covenant, the word will transform your heart. In this new covenant, everyone will know, and then for all your sins will be forgiven. What a promise. Think about the Israelites who are sitting here so desperately in need to hear that. God, you haven't forsaken us, even though we've messed up so many times. God, you haven't left us, even though we feel so far away. God, you haven't... We're having so messed up that we're not beyond reach from you. As a matter of fact, you can reach even this far away from your holy city. You can reach anywhere. And you've given us such hope. The New Testament plainly teaches in many places that the new covenant of Jeremiah 33 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Yet, if you're with me, it's obvious that Jesus has not fulfilled every facet of this passage, right? Not everyone knows, right? Not everyone is conformed to the law of God. Not everyone has been totally transformed. So how is it true that Jesus fulfills Jeremiah's prophecy? The fulfillment of this prophecy comes about in three stages that I want to share with you guys. Many theologians have called these three stages the three stages of the Messianic kingdom. And I've often referred to this in many ways in different sermons. So I, this might be a little deep here, but I want you to get this because this is so important in your understanding of the kingdom of God and how it works. Okay, so don't miss this stuff. Number one, the first stage of this prophecy fulfillment of the kingdom of God is what we call the inauguration. All right, do you guys know what an inauguration is? What, what is it, right? When a president, you know, it's like now you're, after the vote happens and there's like an inauguration day. What day is that? January something? Thank you, all you guys who know this stuff. January 20th is what I heard. Is that correct? Is that right? He's right. Okay, good job, good job. Basically, it's, it's, it's the pronouncement, it's the bestowal of power, it's the, it's the time that says you are now the king, or you are now the president, right? Back in the olden days, it'd be the time when the king might kneel before the clergy and they might, you know, put a crown on him and this is, you're inaugurated as the kingdom. The kingdom has started. It's inaugurated, the covenant came with Christ coming to earth as a man. And in this stage of history, Christ fulfilled many, but not all the expectations of the new covenant. In his life of perfect love, he served God, fulfilled all the requirements of the moral law, and then he paid the penalty for, our death, uh, for disobedience by dying on the cross. As a result, everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation is eternally forgiven. 
This is the wondrous truth that Jesus emphasized when he said to his disciples in Luke 22:20, 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That phrase, new covenant, would have pointed everybody immediately to this hope that they saw in Jeremiah. Jesus was so intentional with the words he used. He knew exactly where everybody's mind would go. The Israelites that he spoke with would immediately have gone to this new covenant in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Verses that they've held on to with such longing. With such longing. And he quoted it exactly and said, this is the new covenant. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. He lived the perfect life of love, obeying the moral law, fulfilling all that it required, and then he died the perfect death. Death of the priceless one. Death of the perfect one. So that by his actions, by his love, by his life, and by his death, and by his resurrection, he inaugurated the kingdom. He brought it forth. He started the new covenant in his blood. Are you guys with me so far? So now the kingdom is here. This prophecy is being fulfilled because the Messiah has come. But we are in an age that we call the continuation of the kingdom. That's the second age. It's called the continuation of the new covenant age. And it extends throughout church history as Christ rules at the right hand of the Father. He rules from heaven and he will continue to do so. During this time, many, but not all, of the expectations of the new covenant are fulfilled as the gospel spreads, as his kingdom advances on earth. So you guys understand, he inaugurated his kingdom. His kingdom has been established, and now he sends his diplomats, his ambassadors, his representatives to advance it on the earth. This is the church age we live in. This is a continuation of the kingdom, of the covenant promises. Are you with me so far? I know this is heady stuff, but I want you guys to get this. Third, well, Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. As the one who rose to the right hand of the Father, Jesus serves as a mediator of the new covenant. And as our covenant mediator, Jesus ensures that his followers have access to the Father, that we receive his sustaining grace. And finally, the covenant age will reach its consummation or the kingdom will receive its consummation in Christ's coming age. And the consummation means the fulfillment, the end fulfillment. At this time, every promise associated with the new covenant will be fulfilled. All of God's people throughout the ages will be perfected in faithful service to God. And more than this, we will receive the result of our eternal forgiveness in Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth when God will make everything new. So we have the inauguration of the kingdom, just what Jesus brought forth. We have the continuation of the kingdom where we live now, where we are advancing the kingdom, moving in this new covenant, empowered by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. And three, then one day, hear me very well, one day with the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom will be fully consummated, where there'll be no more tears, where every heart will be transformed, where we will all bow down and declare, Jesus is Lord. So you guys see the three parts of the kingdom? You see the three parts of the new covenant? You guys with me so far? So currently the idea is that we're living in the stage after the inauguration of the new covenant and before the consummation. Theologians like to call this stage the already and not yet. The already and not yet. 
The idea here is that the kingdom is already here. We're in the kingdom, but it's not yet consummated. It is here, but not yet fully realized. We're a part of the kingdom, and it is advancing, but hasn't reached its culmination yet. Do you guys not see how true that is in our lives every day? Right? I don't know about you guys, but for me, I see this every day. I see this in our church, and I see this in our body. I see the goodness of the kingdom. I see the forgiveness, and I feel the forgiveness I have in Christ. I know it, I get to live in that reality. I am loved, I am forgiven, I am called to purpose, and I love it. But do you know what else I see? I see that this world is still so messed up. I still see how much suffering and struggle that exists. And I live in this weird tension, in this weird place of the already but not yet. Already I'm known, already I'm called, already I'm forgiven, but honestly my heart is not, I am not already transformed fully. I know my own sin and my own nature and I realize this is not the way I want to be sometimes. I long for it, but relive the tension of the already and not yet. We get to live every day in light of fulfilled promise that will one day come to full fruition. There's this famous illustration that I heard one of my professors say a long time ago, but this is a famous illustration that would go around the circles kind of describing this idea of the already and not yet. And it goes like this. Students of World War II have often remarked that although VE Day, or the Day of Victory, was not until May 8th, 1945, in a very real sense, the war in Europe was over on June 6th, 1944 which is commonly known as D-Day. You guys with me so far? In Operation Overlord, a thousand ships, the largest armada ever to set sail, carried hundreds of thousands of soldiers across the English Channel to France where they stormed the coast of Normandy. And it was only the beginning of a military buildup that Germany could never have stopped. Anyone watching objectively knew that it was only a matter of time. Not if, but when. It was so much military personnel and material. It was so many forces and nations and armies that they knew that the war was in effect over at this time. All this declared that the difference between D-Day and V-Day was just a matter of time. And for this reason, many of us said that June 6, 1944, that the war was over on D-Day. However, this rather academic assessment of things differed greatly from the perspective of soldiers on the ground. They were still dodging bullets and all manner of military force. They were still bleeding and wounded. Many were dying. There were still many harrowing days of war yet to be endured, even setbacks. There were battles. It's not that soldiers were unaware of the significance of Normandy. I'm pretty sure they understood it well. Understandably, it gave them a great encouragement. But from the day-to-day experience of this, many, this war was still very much in full swing. The dangers were many and they were everywhere. Guys, I want you to understand this has something that's close resemblance to the Christian experience. God himself has invaded history. He came as one of us to our rescue and has fought the decisive battle of this war. In his death and resurrection, Christ has won the battle. He obtained eternal redemption for us. Final victory has been secured. He has made full and final satisfaction of our sins. He has overthrown and destroyed the enemy. He has crushed his head by his feet. The ruler of this world is cast out. The works of the devil are destroyed. Death has no sting for us. And Christ has forever secured his people. But, but, 
it's still hard in the trenches. It's still hard when battles are being fought. We're caught up in a real battle still. Our adversary walks around like a hungry lion, it says in 1 Peter 5.8. And our constant struggles are struggles against him. The world is broken and hard, and we, the people of God, safe though we are in Christ, secured though we are in Jesus, we still feel the effects of this world. And there are casualties. And from the perspective of the trenches, sickness and death, sin and temptation, suffering and loneliness and disappointment and failure, they all exist. We're in the already, but not yet. And in the trenches, if we're not careful, we can lose perspective. When we're in the trenches, when we feel the bullets and we see the suffering and we see the hurt, we can lose perspective and think, has this war really been won? My people, let me, let me tell you this. When you're in the trenches of this life and you feel alone, when you're in the trenches of this life and the suffering is too hard, when you're in the trenches of this life and you feel like, what is going on? Is there a God? What is purpose? May we remember that the battle is won. The war is won. He fought the decisive battle. D-Day happened. V-Day will happen for you. Please don't miss that. Please don't lose sight of that because it's so easy to. It is so easy to. And that's our reality. We, we live in this reality that we have this hope, we have this future, but sometimes it feels kind of out there, doesn't it? When you're in the trenches, when you're in the hard places, when you're in the midst of divorce, when you're in the midst of cancer, when you're in the midst of, of heartbreak and suffering, when you're in the midst of sickness, and, and when you're in the midst of parents who are in a hard place, and when you're in the midst of kids who are hurting, when you're in the midst of all the stuff that we go through, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to lose sight. When you can't see past the trenches, it's so easy to say, this is it. We're in the already, but not yet. And so what we look to, what we set our eyes to, is two directions. Please hear me very well. We look to two directions. We look to the past and say, our Messiah has come, our hero came, our God rescued. And he did everything necessary to secure our future. And our future is this, the words of Jeremiah. And it's beautiful. We will know him. He will be our God we will be transformed, all will profess, he will be a God, we will be his people. All will be made new, the book of Revelation says this, that all will be made new, that every tear will be wiped away. Is this confidence that shores, up, shores us up throughout the conflict? Our Redeemer has come and he has won and one day he will come again and the redemption has, he has accomplished for us will all then be brought to full realization. No more Satan, no more sin, no more suffering, no more curse, no more weeping. Perfect union with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, for that day. Oh, for that day. Until then, he's given us, oh, please hear this, in this already but not yet, he's given us tastes of that day, hasn't he? 
He's given us experiences like, like the body coming together like this to praise and worship, to support and love. He's given us tastes of glory when we experience creation longing and yelling to sing out and shouts out of glory. He's given us experiences like, like when I think about like the, the seeing my baby born or when I hear my son's laughter or when I get to receive love from people. He's given us tastes of what he's gonna do one day, but it's also so hard when we read the news and we experience life, when we get a phone call that right after, you know, you get word that, oh, your father's doing really well, then all of a sudden he has cancer in the pancreas. And, or, you, you know, you get so excited about how awesome your son is developing, but then the next day you see how much he's not. You get taste of the goodness, but you also get left in this world of hurt and longing. But can I tell you what it should do? It should point you to look at your Messiah and point you to look forward to the coming. It should make you long for the home that you were made for and allow you the strength to live in this one well. Amen? Does that make sense? Jeremiah, this passage is a prophecy word that's also given to us. Some of it was fulfilled, but one day it will be completely realized, and that is our hope. The kingdom is here, and one day it will be fully consummated. We can't wait for that day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for God, the work of your kingdom and its reality in our lives. God, that your kingdom is already inaugurated, that it's here, and we get the blessing of being a part of that, of being known, of being forgiven, of being loved, and having purpose in this continuation period of your kingdom. That's what you've called us to, because we long for the eternal, we long for the, the end, when all things are made new, and as we long for that, we live in that hope, we live now for the purposes of advancing that kingdom that you've called us to advance. So we, we're here to do the work that you've called us to do. So this continuation period, God, we may you continue to use us to, to move in us and through us so your kingdom may continue to advance. And when we see the day, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come and wipe every tear away. God, mend all that is broken. Until that day, will you use us to do that, to give people a coming attraction to preview the kingdom and to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.